turn in your Bibles again, if you would, to Ezra chapter 5 today. Ezra chapter 5. We're actually going to be covering two chapters this morning because it's an exchange of letters that takes place effectively. That's the bulk of what we're going to look at here. And so perhaps a little bit of an unusual message and that we'll be sort of working our way through these passages as we go and uh, reading letters that are, that are contained within the text here. And uh, we'll see what the conclusion of the matter is. So we're going to, with this, then bring to close the first section of the book of Ezra. Remember, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah together make up in the Jewish canon the book of the returns. Uh, This is the first return that we're still talking about, and we will bring to a a conclusion uh, today. Uh, Then there's a gap of about 80 years during which time the events of Esther takes place, and then we'll come back to the second half of Ezra, chapters 7 through 10, and we will see the second return, this time under the man Ezra. Of course, this first return came under the man Zerubbabel, the leader of the Jewish people. We were reminded, of course, that they were, uh, the, uh, the people of Judah had been incarcerated in Babylon. They had been taken captive after a brief conflict with the Babylonian people and uprooted, taken about a thousand miles eastward largely, to the the land of Babylon where we read in Psalms that they hung up their harps on on the trees and riverside and wept for all that they had lost. And they really had lost everything. And yet God worked in an incredible and miraculous way to fulfill prophecy and really to alter the very course of human history. A a king, a leader of a rather obscure people at the time, the Persians, topple mighty Babylon in a single night with with a very clever technique, clever military technique, and Babylon, mighty Babylon, fell in a night. And this event, we find, paved the way then for Israel to return to their land and to rebuild. So we saw in the first two chapters of this book, the book of Ezra, that there were two fundamental theological theses that stand at the foundation of the rebuilding of any people of God after a setback. First, there was a realization that God is in absolute sovereign control over everything that happened. We see this through the outworking of the history of events. We also found that God was a promise-keeping God. I think the message that emerges from perhaps an unlikely place, a series of names, a set of of genealogies designed here to show that God had preserved his people and the families of his people and brought them back together to the land to start over. Chapter 3, the positive news continues. Israel makes very careful and sacrificial plans necessary to the rebuilding of the temple. The finest materials, the finest craftsmanship in the whole world, excellence and careful concern for the requirements of the law being met, and the foundation was laid with great fanfare and rejoicing. But then, the last time we were together, we looked at chapter 4, and we find here that Israel is now moving into a much worse situation. So in Ezra 4, we saw that all of the fortitude and all the faith and all the obedience that Israel had mustered nonetheless 
resulted in stiff opposition from the people of the land, and little by little the work ground to a halt. So Satan hurls this battery of tests against this small core group, uh, temptation from, by, by means of discouragement from within, from discouragement without, temptation for, through to compromise and, and deception from the idolatrous people around the area. And finally, there was a slander campaign uh, mounted by the, uh, those who were faithful to Persia and the people who were worried, concerned, eventually stopped building. And so for 15 years, in that little white gap between chapter 24 of chapter 4 and verse 1 of chapter 5, there's 15 years of discouraged inactivity. The people were doing nothing uh, to rebuild the temple or the city of Jerusalem. They were spending some time building their own homes, uh, but this idea of a concentrated work of the entire people to do something together was stymied by all of these sources of discouragement. So what's going to get the work started again? Well, we find this in chapter 5. <coughs> find here, in fact, that the primary impetus for the resumption of God's work, as it always is, was the restoration of the ministry of the Word of God and a glad submission by those who heard their message. Look at these first two verses here. Then the prophets, Haggai and the prophet, uh, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them. And then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jozadak arose and began again to rebuild the house of God which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So what's the impetus here, this catalyst for the resumption of the work of God? Well, the text clearly indicates that they respond to the preaching of these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, which are known to, known to us, of course, because they both have books with their names attached to them in the Minor Prophets. Now, what we find in the book of Zechariah is a, is a set of prophecies that occur much later during his ministry. So uh, there's, there's probably not a whole lot of value in looking at Zechariah this morning. But Haggai, in fact, the, uh, the, 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 what we find here in the, in the book of Haggai is, in fact, the messages that he delivered at this time. And so we can get a gist of what he was saying. Uh, so we know exactly how he was he was, uh, he was uh, you know, impelling uh, the people of Israel to resume the work. Okay, so we find here in the book of Haggai, you might want to just move over there, just want to perhaps summarize the book of Haggai because this is, this is really what's wrapped up in these first two verses of Ezra. These are four sermons. Uh, they were preached, one in August, one in October, and two in December of 520 B.C. We know this because he dates them very, very carefully. So by do, before doing anything else, I want to survey here, what is it that he actually said? What is it that caused the people to say, let's get started with the work of God again? I'm just going to read ten verses here to get a sense of his message, starting in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So the word of the Lord 
came by Haggai the prophet, saying this, It is time for you yourself, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled, your decorated houses, while his house lies desolate? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put it into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild my temple, that I may be pleased with it and glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you returns to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains and the grain, the new wine and the oil, and on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and all of the labor of your hands." This is probably not the entirety of Haggai's message here, but it's a summary. And summaries are designed to encapsulate what was said. And I think these verses do a very good job of it. So what's the message that Haggai gives? Well, if I can summarize still further, it's this. Stop thinking about yourselves and start thinking about God. Stop thinking about yourselves and start thinking about the work of God. So instead of concerning yourselves with the needs that you personally find important, and the, the list is amazingly relevant, isn't it? Housing, home improvements, careers, fashion, and eating. Okay. These are the five things that the people were concerned about rather than the work of God. Isn't that a, isn't that a list that we still struggle with today? Instead of these things, Haggai says, start thinking about the work of God. The collective work of God. Summary, I think this is a call to stop thinking atheistically. That may seem like a rather strong term, atheist. Uh, but I use it deliberately to highlight the import of what's being said. I'm not saying that these people were atheists in the sense that they denied the existence of God. What I am saying is that they had started to live in such a way that it was impossible for anyone to know that they believed in the existence of God. Their priorities, their time, their money were all directed in the same direction as their pagan neighbors. There was no way to discern between the true believers and those who were idolaters. They were all living the same way. They were not living in such a way that you could tell that they were believers. Now, I'm not so naive to think that there is a direct correspondence between the temple of God and the church of God. And the houses and careers of those people are not the same as the houses and careers of our people. But I think in principle there is an application that we all can draw. Just as the work of God suffered in Ezra's day when the people became more concerned about their own personal and familial interests than about the broader work that God is doing in the world, so also we can do the same. We can become so engrossed in our own personal interests that the work of God, at least on the local level, is hobbled. I think we do well to remind ourselves that the primary vehicle that God has designed for the progress of his work on earth is the church. 
It's an organism that demands great allegiance, more allegiance than any other organization. In fact, when Christ came to the earth, he came with the clear statement that he had not come to bring peace on earth, but rather, he says, a sword. He says, I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and everyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What's he saying? The concern of God, the concerns of God as wrapped up in the mission of the Christian church actually takes priority even over this storied institution of the family. If the question is, do I obey God or obey my husband, my wife, or do what my children want me to do, what's the answer? You do what God says. You do what God says. A few short chapters later, Jesus announces that his relationship to his disciples is more important to him than his relationship to his mother and his brothers. Remember, they came and said, hey, your mother says do this. Your brothers are telling you to do this. And what does he say? You're my brothers and my sisters. I'm here to do the work of God. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm certainly not opposed to family structure. Scripture has much to say about the importance of family relationships between husbands and wives and parents and children, and far be it from me to suggest that these can be neglected. But in terms of emphasis and relative importance, the New Testament emphasizes the life of the church. And while Haggai was surely not addressing the church, he was surely addressing a problem that continues to the present day, an emphasis on family, on materialism, on filling one's pockets, preparing for retirement, to the degree that it squeezes out God. And we do well to listen to Haggai's sermon. Stop thinking about you. Start thinking about God. Of course, human efforts in jumpstarting the work of God are ultimately not enough. In fact, as we look through the first three chapters, we seem to have all of that. The people of God here were zealous, they were generous, they were properly, properly separated from the world, they were concerned about excellence, they were doing everything according to the law, everything looked good, but the work stopped largely externally by circumstances outside their control, in this case the Persian government. And so it is with the work of God today, not only internal spiritual lethargy can stop the work of God, but there's also things outside of, our, of ourselves that can actually cause the work of God to grind, to a slowdown. And here we do well to remind ourselves that the church is, in fact, the work of God. It's not the work of us, primarily. It's not our church. I mean, it is our church, but it's God's church. It's God's church. And so it's the providence and grace of God that keeps it moving, not just the efforts of people, of Ambassador Baptist Church. It's, it is necessary for us to be ambassadors of the Word of God, but we never can forget that it's God who must open hearts of our hearers to respond to the Word of God. As Jonathan Edwards spoke of the revival of religion, he always spoke of a sudden and surprising work of God. 
And so we do depend upon God uh, to do His work. It's not just something. It's not just a matter of you know pulling up your bootstraps and working hard. We need the providence of God in order for the work of God to move forward. And we find this as well. This is the bulk of this cha these chapters here in chapters five and six. And so Haggai and Zechariah preaching the word convince the people that they need to stop neglecting the work of God. And so they return to Jerusalem in verses 3 and 4. Uh, we find that the work begins again. But now this local Persian governor, his name is Tatanai here, takes immediate issue with, with what's going on. And so he comes to prepare a letter. So he collects data to prepare a letter to fire off to the, to the, uh, to the capital, to the, uh, uh, to the emperor of Persia and threatens to shut them down. So there it is in verses 3 and 4. He comes, spoke, speaks to us thus, Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? Apparently he asks then, What are your names? You, know, you, have, you, have, have, you ever work at a, at, a, at a service industry and something goes wrong and so somebody goes up to you and says, What's your name? You know that they're going to take your name and take it to their superiors, their manager, and say, I don't want to give my names. But there it is, verse 4. So we told them accordingly what our names were, who were going to, to go ahead and reconstruct this building. But we find here in verse 5 that the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so they did not stop them until a report could come to Darius, king of Persia, and a written reply could be con uh, written concerned it. So they, they, they reply here and say, we've been, we've been given permission by Cyrus. It was a while ago. <laughs> it was 15 years ago that we got this, this permission from the king of Persia. But we have permission. And so apparently what this did was sort of, sort of you know, causes them to back off just a little bit. Because what if it's true? <laughs> we don't want to be the, uh, the one who actually says the edict of the king of Persia is, is nullified. So they said, okay, well, you can keep working. Well, we're sending a letter, and if this letter comes back and it's not in your favor, you are in big trouble. Okay, and so this letter goes off, and we find this letter detailed here in the rest of this chapter. Okay, uh, so, uh, uh, so I'm reminded perhaps of the epic film here, uh, Ten Commandments. Goes on TV periodically, usually at Easter time, right? Um, amid the great fanfare and the acting there, there's a subtle theme of providence that weaves its way through that entire film. Throughout the movie, uh, Pharaoh, misnamed I think, but, but makes a statement, usually accompanied by drum rolls so it has been written, so it shall be done. But at the very last scene of the movie, after all the, all the pictures are gone, a, a, a graphic comes up on the screen, just words. God has proven triumphant, and the, and the movie closes with this captivating statement, so it has been written, so it has been done. Drawing attention here to the fact that when God's people trust in him, God is faithful to the promises and the prophecies here. And so this work of God continues unopposed until the answer of this letter can come back. So what, what does the letter say? Well, it starts here in verse 8. Let it be known to the king, he says, Tatanai, this is Tatanai, the governor of the province, sends this letter to Darius king, 
All peace, let it be known to the king that we have gone to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, which is being built with huge stones. And beams are being laid in the walls, and this work is going on with great care, and it's succeeding in their hands. This is the way. These great stones are still there. They're, they're, some of them are 30 tons each. Uh, the, the Romans threw them down in uh, A.D. 70 when Titus comes to destroy them. You can actually see, they are great stones. They're, they're about 30 tons each. To this day, we're not really sure how they got them up there. But anyhow, that's just sort of an aside here. When we asked these elders and said to them thus, who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names, so as to inform you so that we might write down the names of the men who were at the head. Thus they answered us, saying, We are the servants of God of heaven and earth, and are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers provoked the wrath of the God of heaven, he gave them to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild the house of God. Also the gold and silver utensils of this house, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought them to the temple of Babylon, these King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had appointed governor. He said to him, Take these utensils, go and deposit them in the temple of Jerusalem, and let the house of God rebuild in its place. Then that Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem, and from then until now it has been under construction, though it is not yet completed. Now, if it pleases the king, let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, and see if it be that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild the house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send us his decision according to this matter. Sort of put some tone there in verse 17, because I think that's what the tone is. We know this isn't true. We know these people are just building this, this city, and they're, they're building this, this temple so that they can rebel against you. We know they're lying, so give us the goods, and we will put an end to this. Okay, very cocky letter here. But we all know from chapter 1 that what the Israelites said was true. They were doing everything they were doing as a result of this decree of Cyrus. Now, they had stopped for 15 years because of their worry, their concern uh, that the, uh, that the, that the, of the people in the area. And so uh, a generation had passed, and so some of the details were lost. And so these, these, when they restart, start, restarted the project, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the local governors here of, of Persian Persian blood probably had were a complete new set of governors. They didn't know anything about this previous edict from Cyrus. But then King Darius issues his decree. In verse 1, he searches, he looks, he finds a scroll, and he writes it down as follows, memorandum. I'm not sure if that was a word that they were using there, but uh, there it is, memorandum. Verse 3. In the year of King Cyrus, Cyrus the king did issue a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the temple and the place where sacrifices are offered be rebuilt. Let its foundations be retained, its height according to 60 cubits, 90 feet high, its width 60 cubits, 
with three layers of huge stories, one layer of timbers, and let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And let also the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be returned. And brought to their places in the temple at Jerusalem, and you shall put them into the house of God. Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and your colleagues, the officials in the provinces beyond the river, keep away from them. Leave this work on the work of, leave the, this work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild their house of God on its site. Moreover, I decree, issue a decree concerning what you are to do for the elders of Judah in the rebuilding of this house of God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces of the river, and that without delay. Use the, your local funds to fund this now. Whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams, lambs for the burnt offering to the God of heaven, the wheat, the salt, the wine, the anointing oil, as the priests in Jerusalem request, it is to be given to them daily without fail so that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. So I issued a decree that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his own house and he shall be impaled upon it, and his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it so as to destroy the house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out with diligence. <laughs> I love the letter. So the work of God continues unopposed. We find out that the Jews aren't lying at all. They're not deceiving. They're not committing treason. So we discover here that Darius indeed upheld, upholds their permission here to do this. Furthermore, they were actually accelerated by the contents of this letter. The passage tells us that the local Persian government has to foot the bill. And what do you know? After hearing that they might be impaled on you know, stakes from their own houses, they said, sure, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. Yes, absolutely. And so we find that they carried out the decree with all diligence. And so the work goes on. The providence of God is at work. So we see the pulpit ministry of the prophets of God. Then we see the providence of God comes to bear. And then we have one last point left, and I'll be brief with it. Priority of the pulpit and necessity of divine providence is there, but then there's something else. And that is a lot of hard work. A lot of hard work. So the place of perseverance, if we can put in a third P here, uh, the priority of the pulpit, providence, and the place of perseverance in prayer in reviving the work of God. It's, it's interesting here when we look at the passage of time in this story. Sometimes we, 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 we miss the passage of time because it happens so quickly in the rather short, you know, short phrases here. But we find in verse 15 that the construction that started in the second year of Darius was completed in the sixth year of so it took four years after this decree was issued for them to finish the work, to make preparations for the Passover celebration 
that is described here in the last four verses of this chapter. And so it often is with the work of God, right? You know, we, we, we all wish there was a shortcut to the work of God. You know, we, you know let's, let's, let's bring an evangelist who can you know, whip the crowd up into a frenzy and get people down the, the aisle and get it done in a hurry. But so often, that's not how it works, right? Far more often, personal revival is granted by God in modest, inconspicuous confines of a prayer closet, in the commitment to spend a lot more time and a lot more effort over the long haul to advance the work of God. And the temple wasn't built overnight. It took four long years of painstaking effort to complete the work of God. It was hard work. There were probably a lot of problems along the way, a lot of heartaches, a lot of headaches. People probably ticked off with one another as they worked their way through it. But after four years, they actually saw some progress. And so it so often is with the work of God. You know, we're, we're excited, of course, here in the church because a person has agreed to candidate. We're filled with hope. And, uh, you know, at some point, whether this candidate or another finally says yes, we're going to be riding high. It's going, to be, it's going to be a grand moment, right? We're going to have a new guy at the helm. We're going to make progress, and, and yet that progress isn't going to happen overnight. It's not as though this is the Messiah coming, right? This is just another pastor who is going to introduce you to the hard work that needs to be done in order for the church to make incremental steps forward as it grows. And that's, that's how the work of God works. Okay? And so as we anticipate God taking this work of God, this local work of God here at Ambassador Baptist Church, what are we looking for? One, we're looking for the priority of the pulpit okay, to encourage God's people to do exactly what he tells them to do. Secondly, we need to rely heavily upon the providence of God, knowing that all the effort in the world will do nothing if God's not in the work. And then thirdly, we do find that there is an awful lot of hard work, commitment, and sacrifice for the, for the, uh, for the work of God so that it can move forward. And so as we come to the close of this first return, we find a note of triumph again. And yet it's not a note of immediate, just a, a, a you know, a, a you know, a big parade like you see at the end of, you know, Star, Star Wars, right? Uh, that's, that's not how it ends. It ends with a lot more hard work yet to be done. And I hope as we read this that we can be committed to the work of God here at Ambassador Baptist Church so we can see uh, the, the work of God move forward as we participate in it. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word. Grateful for uh, the uh, the triumphs, the, uh, the the even the entertainment of reading these letters that show uh, your hand at work in history. And Lord, may we have that same sort of giddy feeling when we see your hand start to work here at this local expression of your work. And Lord, may we again delight to see your hand 
causing this church to prosper. And as we see that, Lord, help us to all to be participants in that work uh, to bring it to fruition. And Lord, we ask that you would be pleased uh, to do such uh, with this church as we move forward in your name.